0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Today we have a somewhat abridged Kate Lila, as I'm trying to keep freshly recorded episodes to like an hour, hour and a half while I'm on mat leave, aka produce a normal person's podcast Uh, But I think this is a fun one that has a mix of nostalgic and current event related pop culture questions. So I hope you enjoy it. If you're new here, Kate Lila is a clunky merging of my name with radio legend Delilah's, because every once in a while I'll do an episode where I take listener voicemails and try to remain inspired by Delilah and her insistence that we love someone tonight, as I used to listen to her soft, soothing voice on Light 98 in Richmond, Virginia on my way home from volleyball practice. I also apologize in advance if this episode I'm talking in a dulcet tone. Uh, My husband's back at work. Before we have a regular childcare situation figured out, I'm squeezing in recording uh, in between very short time increments that I have and oftentimes babies in the room or I don't know. So thank you for bearing with me. Uh, Since I went into labor a little earlier, I didn't have as many weeks as I had hoped of pre-records locked and loaded. But it was so fun to do this this week because I felt like I was talking to adults and that was exciting. Early September is always an exciting season. I don't know. I like the back to school vibes. It's also my birthday. It was very confusing having an early September birthday because I never knew if, you know, if I was going to have a birthday party, do I invite my class from the year before or my new class that I hardly know? I'm sure those of you with early September birthdays can relate. Um, and yeah, I hope you guys had a good back to school week. Oh, also, if you want to clear some teacher lists, we have on my at Kate Kennedy highlight. I've been slacking this year because I'm preoccupied, but we did. Collect a uh, teacher wish list to clear, and that both the form and the list you can clear are on my Instagram highlights at Kate Kennedy. If you want to, which would be great. Having a newborn is is a confusing mixture of being chaotic and a little boring. Um, You're like dysregulated and overstimulated sometimes, but deeply understimulated others. I I mean, it's kind of crazy. I'm yeah approaching Labor Day. It's my it's one month for my Labor Day with Teddy. I can't believe it's been four weeks. It did kind of go fast because the first week I was in and out of the hospital with like postpartum complications, as you know. And then the second and third weeks we had my mom, and then my sister, and then Greg's parents. So this past weekend change, we've been adjusting to it being just us, and so far so good. Honestly, I, I he's a nice guy. This Teddy. <laughs> He's better behaved than my first young son, Tugboat. He, he kind of just sleeps and stares at me, loves a deck of like black and white cards. He wakes up every three hours on the dot without fail. And yeah, that part is tough. I think the advice to sleep when the baby sleeps is, it's so, it's hilarious to me because it implies that I can sleep on command. Like, what am I, an adult male? I, I could never be that unbothered. I, I've i had to knock myself out with some over-the-counter combination of like melatonin or Advil PM for any hopes at a chance to get some REM. And when I was pregnant, I unisomed it up. Like, But now I don't feel like I can do that because I need to, you know, be caring for another life. And it's just, I don't know, I find that advice more stressful because if I try to sleep when the baby sleeps... I just stress out the whole time about not being asleep. If I, if the baby's taking, let's say, like an hour and a half nap or something, it's like okay. First, I have to find my headphones, and then find a podcast or like audiobook to listen to while I doze because I cannot be left with my own thoughts or silence. And then I'm like, okay, but I want like a beverage bedside because I'm thirsty. And is the room the right temperature? And then I'll get through a solid like fifteen to twenty minutes of scrolling. Just because I can and I want to maximize my alone time with rest. But I have, I also want to be in the know. And then like I'll probably spend the next 30 to 40 minutes pretending I'm trying to sleep. But really I'm just wondering if the baby's breathing or is like hot or is he cold? Or I'll like overthink that, you know, I just tried to do this like one-handed bottle feeding acrobatic move because I was trying to multitask while he was taking his sweet time, you know, having what I guess is his fifth dinner. And he's making weird noises. And I'm like, oh, did I make him suck in too much gas? And like, that's why he's CrossFit grunting over here in the corner. And then by the time I Google how much does, you know, bottle angle affect gas, or like, which bottle is best to prevent gas? Or like, why do babies have so much GD gas? It's like over an hour has passed, but the gas is not passed. And then I'm not tired anymore. And like, I'm too jacked up about trying these new gas solutions. So then I just watch succession or scroll TikTok until he wakes up and then I can assess if the way I held his bottle two hours ago will in fact be his GI tracks demise. And that's kind of the cycle that I'm in, not a REM cycle. So far for me, the best way I can describe parenting is that it's basically troubleshooting. Like I mentioned on Patreon, I think it reminds me of project management. It's a lot of organization and moving parts and like brief dramatic moments of firefighting inside of a pretty dull and predictable routine otherwise. And uh, I think that part of it's kind of funny. You're just always trying to be like, okay, something's off. And then there's like 500 things you can tinker with to see if they help, but like they never do. And even if they did, no two days are the same. So you're really just driving yourself crazy, but it's like kind of fun all the same. I mean, you know, me in a deep dive or a rabbit hole, I kind of like to be immersed in a world. I kind of like to learn everything I can about a new topic and then try to feign a level of expertise in a short period of time or have a really in-depth understanding of it. I kind of felt that way when I was doing IVF treatments and I kind of felt that way during pregnancy, like I, every stage I that I didn't know a lot about You can kind of combat your anxiety by doing a ton of research. And on some days, it's overwhelming, but on some days, it's almost entertaining. And I just think there's like a funny pipeline of like experimenting with what you're feeding them bottle type, bottle temperature, then angle, then how you burp, then how you swaddle, then where they sleep and what hours they sleep and what sound machine you use. And it's like a funny, I mean, and all the while, he just sleeps when we put him down. But like, I'm out here trying to, optimize it like it's an assembly line. Honestly, because I'm probably slightly understimulated, and it keeps it interesting. I also think that the, <laughs> this, is, this is kind of stupid, but the best part about having your own baby is honestly that you can like kiss its face all you want. Because I've always found it hard, you know, like cute aggression when other people's babies are cute and then you have to fight the urge to kiss them, like as you should, because please don't kiss other people's babies, holy COVID and or RSV. But when it's your own baby you can kiss it as much as you want. And I don't know. It's kind of a thrill. I didn't 3D print the uh, chubby cheeks myself only to deprive myself of unlimited mom smooches. And I'm just, I'm really cherishing this phase. It's its snuggly and highly dependent, and I know it won't last forever, and who knows what's to come. But uh, for a solid month, he's been a very sweet, calm, pretty chill baby. And I feel very lucky for that, and I know it will change. but. I'm choosing to savor it and pretend like it's like my reward, maybe, (laughs) after every other part of this has been so nightmarish. And I don't know, oddly, yeah, this past month is the first time I felt like a sense of peace in well over a year, probably, when I started fertility treatments and stuff. And I think it, it has made me realize kind of the cognitive and emotional load the whole like trying to have a kid thing puts on you. And how much uncertainty and anxiety weighs on you when the baby isn't here yet, it's just an idea or something you're trying for, or investing in fertility treatments, or even like finally getting pregnant. Like, I don't know, just having him here as just a huge weight off of my mind and heart in a way that gives me a lot of peace I wasn't anticipating, even though it's not easy. I mean, I don't know when I'll sit in a hard chair again. I literally can't wear any of my clothes. I'm quite struggling with like my appetite and like sleep schedule and all sorts of things. But it I don't know. It all feels manageable comparatively, at least for me, for now. Um, but as I've said, like in previous eras, my husband couldn't take half the fertility shots or do half the procedures or carry my pregnant belly in the other room or, you know, step into help push the baby out when I got tired like it was all on me for so long and I was exhausted and having a partner you know with the childcare piece is such a source of relief because for the first time in forever I can take a break like an actual break where for a brief period of time my energy and physical being is not someone else's life source you know And for us, you know, I can't speak for everyone's circumstances, whether it was breast milk or formula, we've done bottles like from the get go so both of us can feed him. So I should caveat that my like breeziness only applies to my situation because I don't know anyone else's. But also I do know how feeding really impacts the newborn experience. Um, But regardless of how long this phase lasts, yeah, a month in, I'm really enjoying myself so far. And not because it's easy, but because it's more simple than I thought it would be. and. Um, I you know I knew it would be chaotic, so my expectations were managed for that. But my expectations weren't managed for that. It would also be offset by being like calm and cute, you know. I mean, some days it's stressful and sleepless. Some days it's 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 just so boring and understimulating. But most days I'm able to achieve balance, and most nights we just sit there rocking. And regardless of how the day went, I'm you know at the risk of sounding cheesy, I'm just like man you are the best thing that's ever been mine, you know? And uh, that was the part I maybe didn't see coming. Speaking of things that won't be coming, I gave birth four weeks ago, right? And I think about the six weeks of it all, not only the appointment, but like the fact that more so than like checking my blood pressure or watching out for shortness of breath, the one thing I was abundantly clear about upon discharge was like not to have sex before six weeks. And I'm just like. Now that I'm close to that marker, it's even more insane to me that they even have to say that, even though I know it's like medically important. But like it, it simply does not feel more important than like many other watchouts that I was not warned of. I was reading there's an investigation done by the North Carolina Public Health Department with related to maternal deaths. And not only did they find that 84 percent of pregnancy related deaths were deemed preventable. 53% of the deaths occurred well after women left the hospital between seven days and a year after delivery. And there's such interesting data within this, but the, the leading causes aren't having sex too early. It's like cardiovascular issues, elevated blood pressure. A lot of people miss their six-week appointment because they are caring for their child or they are forced to go back to work. I mean, not to mention the like horrendous disparities in maternal health with Black women have a Maternal mortality rate that's three times that of white women in the United States specifically. I mean, endless weaknesses in the system of care for new mothers. I think I'm just still a little, if you listen to the birth story and postpartum story on Patreon, I think as a person who really has learned to like advocate for myself and like on the high alert for complications, like I just still can't believe it wasn't on my radar what I should be looking out for after the fact. And that like I almost didn't go in when something was like dangerously wrong with me. But I did know, you know, loud and clear, not to knock boots for six weeks. I mean, like, I don't even think I could put on boots. i That sounds like a goal I'll make for October is to get an enclosed boot around my foot. But it's just kind of a weird thing where you're discharged as like a vessel and then they warn you about when you can again become a sex object. And I'm like, what about me as just a human woman trying to recover from a major medical event? Like, why? Well, where are our priorities? Anyway, you guys. Ever since doing the uh, Patreon about my experience, I've heard from so many of you that also had to go back in and kind of push themselves a little far after they were discharged for shortness of breath, for elevated blood pressure, you know, or signs of postpartum preeclampsia, like uh, blurring of vision or headaches or whatever. And I just, yeah, we'll talk about that sometime on another episode. But in all seriousness, if we're here And you are a person that may give birth, just get a blood pressure cuff, please, for the love and check it when you leave the hospital. Just as much as you do toward the end of your pregnancy, it might save your life. But that's not why we're here today. We're here for voicemails. So I'll probably do like three, maybe four, just to keep it short. Thank you for letting me do a brief life update. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. And we'll get to voicemails after these brief messages from our sponsors that are making my maternity leave possible. God bless. I am so excited to have All Right back as a sponsor. And they've pointed out something so interesting to me that most women's jewelry ads are actually marketed to men. And I think that's kind of a funny thing, like buy her a gift, buy her a push present, get her something special, whatever. And it's like, okay, but also, I like to buy my own jewelry and I know what I like. So why aren't they being marketed to me? I have so many people ask me where to get delicate gold jewelry and or makes jewelry perfect for every day, every occasion. It's great for a gift, specifically when you're buying one for yourself, which I like to do. And their jewelry is crafted from real recycled gold, real diamonds and real gemstones. I also think it's very fairly priced. Even with their vermeil. you're getting very good quality for what you're paying. And what's important to me is like their real gold. I've had so much trouble with cheaper jewelry turning my neck green or tarnishing or whatever and this stuff holds up whether going swimming exercising showering every day wearing this jewelry i've done it all and uh it's it's really held up beautifully so i actually just bought something with my own money from their Toi et moi collection which means you and me where you can pair two birthstones in this like really cool vintage style and i got my birthstone and teddy's birthstone i just think it's so cute But lately, my favorite is this diamond bezel necklace. Like I always see people wearing a very delicate gold chain with like a tiny diamond in the middle. And I've always wanted that. And I just got one from Orate that's 14 karat gold. And it's like $245 if you use the discount. And I've had this version in a sapphire for years that is literally not even tarnished a smidge. And I wanted it in a diamond too. And I just think it's very reasonably priced and beautiful. And I'm always looking for... Great value jewelry, and uh, I'm excited to be back partnering with R8. Every day is a good day to gift yourself jewelry, but right now is the best time to shop R8 because our listeners get 30% off their R8 purchase using code in 530 at allrightnewyork.com. That's code BETHEREIN530 for 30% off R8 at aurate York.com. That's allrightnewyork.com.
1: Hi, Kate. Uh, I love listening to your podcast. Thank you so much for doing it. Um, congratulations on the birth of your son. I had my son in 2021, but I think this observation is still relevant. Um, once I took on the identity of mother, I started noticing that the trend cycle for fashion has come back to a lot of 80s, 90s fashion that was in style when my parents were new parents. Um, I'm not sure if I'm gravitating toward it more because we've made a fir- full circle back to the 90s fashion-wise. Or because, to me, young motherhood looks like scrunchies, oversized hoodies, and light wash high-waist denim. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and whether you find yourself somewhat cosplaying as your mom now that you are also a mom. Um, thanks so much.
0: Such a fun question. There's so many tangents that could go on from this question alone. There were kind of two parts of this question I was thinking about when I heard your voicemail. like the. Part about how fashion is cyclical and a lot of 90s trends are back in style and the coincidence slash alignment, I guess, of many millennials who were kids in the 90s observing mom fashion, now being moms themselves. And that kind of being full circle. I think part of that is definitely true. And the general fashion cycle brought back 90s style jeans and scrunchies. And uh, I think that now I just understand that the things I would wear as a new mom, independent of space and time and trends, I would want to be low maintenance just because of where I'm at in my life. In terms of dressing like my own mom, when I picture my mom in the 90s, she did have lots of scrunchies and headbands like we do now, but I kind of picture her more in like a Liz Claiborne snappy casual outside of the house and like a windsuit. In the house or walking to school. And I know I know I've said it before, but my God, I'm here for a windsuit revival. We really haven't brought those back. And I don't know why, because it is a delight for the eyes and ears. All the moms that like are in the neighborhood and like walked us to school and stuff, I feel like they played tennis together and all wore windsuits. And to your point, even though it's not an identical look, it's actually, I think, very similar to what I'm doing now. Because I think that was my mom and other 90s moms version of athleisure. It's a matching set, a matching jacket and pants that's not only comfortable but like easy to throw on on trend and like there's nothing better than a matching set in kind of a chaotic period of life because it's a whole coordinated outfit without having to think through a top and bottom. so in that way, I do think I'm very similar to what I remember my mom wearing and what's hard about memories is that sometimes I confuse my memories with like home videos I've seen. And there's a couple of Christmas videos where she is wearing like a pretty fierce purple purple teal and like pink windsuit that does have geotracker energy um and i wish we still had it because it was gorgeous so yes it's like (sighs) there are some trends that i'm adopting but i actually think the through line is more so anything that's comfortable and requires little thought and what's interesting about even talking about how i think that The through line of, you know, young motherhood fashion would be things that are low maintenance. I even am careful to say that because when you think of like mom haircuts, you know, things labeled as mom blank, a mom haircut. To me, it kind of implied something that was low maintenance. I actually like to when Teddy grabs my hair because my hair is really long. I'm like, oh, I get why this is really annoying and it's more convenient to have shorter hair and then you worry about hair tourniquets around their finger and stuff and it just doesn't really make a ton of sense right now to have my hair down. Um, And it's an interesting thing where I think that part of my internalized misogyny or understanding of like when we label things as mom blank is like kind of the offensive angle of, well, a mom is obviously so preoccupied with her kids she can't she doesn't have time to take care of herself her own vanity which is a ridiculous assumption that you know just because you're a mom you must be either so swamped and busy that you don't want to style your hair or moms are selfless creatures who don't care about their appearance anymore like whatever the hell it means and it's an interesting thing where it's like yeah i'm in the early stages of this i could carve out time if i wanted to 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 do a full round brush blowout But do I want to? No. My priorities have changed. I don't care. It's not the most practical solution. And there's something liberating about being able to make a few less decisions in a day. So when you dress low maintenance or your hair is low maintenance, it's not like oppressive or sad or like I don't have time to do it. It's that I don't want to waste my time on bullshit right now, especially if it's not serving my, you know, recovery, my mental health, my ability to sleep or whatever. You know what I mean? I'm kind of I'm kind of trying to regress through all of the things that I've allowed the world to convince me about motherhood that were like, for lack of a better word, sounded kind of sad. That sounded sad to me, honestly. Um, And I think that I just now, you know, especially understanding what an athletic and mental and physical, excruciating medical event, you know, pregnancy and labor is, I just think about, any asshole who dares to say somebody's let themselves go and now what i think about that phrase and i'm just like it actually kind of has a whole different meaning like there is as a person who is kind of vain and like will wear mascara to a cvs just to feel better in ways that i don't always feel like picking apart or if, if it's something i really want if it's the patriarchy who cares i like to wear mascara to a cvs to buy more mascara but there's something interesting how having such a rough pregnancy and recovery has made me kind of feel like I could take a deep breath in regard to my appearance. And when I think about letting myself go, this like phrase that is so inherently cruel, but is something that when I was younger, I thought of it being said about me and being like, oh my God, I never want that to happen. But now I'm like, yeah, I let myself go and do something that wasn't centered on being looked at. Like, I let myself go to a Jonas Brothers concert last weekend with my hair up and wet. And guess what? It didn't affect how much fun I had. I, I let myself go to the store and buy clothes that actually fucking fit instead of lamenting that my old ones may never fit the same. And I, I'm just kind of like, honestly, good for me that I let myself go easy on myself for once because my recovery and well-being are more important than my appearance. I think I've experienced a change where I can let go of caring. And anyone who ever makes you or me or anyone else feel pressure to look the same way, to feel like they need to bounce back, whatever the hell that means, anyone who would ever dare suggest that in some way, shape or form, you've let yourself go. As we like to say here at the Be There in Five podcast, they can let themselves go play in traffic. But I was thinking about mom jeans because, like, at one one point they were such a punchline, and now they're like the hottest selling item at Abercrombie. Like, I think don't both Abercrombie and Madewell, I think, like, have it on their labels as like a certain type of jean, right? And I was like, wait, so when did high waisted, like, straight leg denim? become mom jeans because at some point they were just jeans and to your point when you called in earlier you're like high-waisted light wash denim like that those were just jeans in the 90s like that's what people wore regardless of being moms. so like when and how did they get rebranded from like just 90s fashion to something that's kind of derogatory and more of a punchline you know the SNL sketch about mom jeans was in 2003 and I was thinking about the early 2000s and how like this just being, okay, I don't know if I'm going to articulate this well, but this is just another example of how low rise denim ruins lives. Um, think about like late nineties, early 2000s, low rise denim becomes all the rage and think about being a new mom a young mom a mom with a lot of kids whatever like in that style being in vogue and n- simply being unable to participate in the denim trends because they're started by teenage pop starlets in size exclusive fashion houses that weren't making clothes for human women's bodies rather very ba- girls like young people n- not a girl not yet a woman aged individuals who were being bombarded with impossible beauty and b- body standards uh, who some of whom not all though, because they were oppressed by them too, could pull off this very unforgiving restrictive style that barely covered your crotch that were deeply unpractical for anyone that has to bend over any time and that did not come in a you know inclusive range of sizes so if you're in your you know back then you're in your thirties, your forties, and you know whether you're a new mom or recent mom have kids or not or your body just changes because that's what happens as we get older like what are you supposed to do when the thing that's in style is widely impractical and unfavorable and honestly offensive to the adult female form you're probably just gonna wear the jeans you already had because what else were they gonna do out, out of the paris blues just show up at carpool with a full-on whale tail? I I think about being my age at that time and being made fun of for not being able to fit into low-rise jeans. And I'm like, my torso has worked too hard and been through too much to let it be bullied into open air, into into belly button exposure. It, it wants to be swaddled like a baby. It deserves fabric. It deserves support. No, I wouldn't have switched to low rise jeans. So this is what I think about at night. <laughs> I was like, so did these were just always these are just regular jeans, but then in the early two thousands, around the time of the SNL, get so two thousand three, they become a punchline not because of what they were, but because of their contrast to what was popular at the time: the low rise, super tight, pocketless, like flare denim, whatever. Like my, the Delta was so stark and how these styles differed that we rebranded what was once a perfectly acceptable and stylish pair of jeans as this reductive mom jean, almost positioning it as like something women wear who, who can't keep up with the trends or too busy with their kids. They've let themselves go when in reality, like I said earlier, maybe they just let themselves go to the store and buy pants that fit in a style that they liked. Not because they're too busy with their kids to care about their appearance, not because they want to be frumpy, not because of any of the other sexist bullshit we project onto them, but because maybe they've been through enough and experienced enough and aged past the point of caring what you think about their pants. So I was researching this. (laughs) Literally nobody came here to, to trace back mom genealogy. But I do find this interesting because we talk a lot about like trends and things being called like two year basic. And especially when like millennials on TikTok seem to short circuit that skinny jeans were like out and side parts were out and all this stuff that I'm like, I don't really like, I don't get the point of aging and maturing and having more life experience. Um, if not that it, you know, makes you stand and you like what you like, you like how you look in certain things. If you like to be on trend, then you know, change with the with the tides. But if you like side parts and skinny jeans, like wear them. Who cares? Anybody, a person wearing things that are allegedly dated is not the one at fault. A person making fun of someone for doing that is, unless of course you're making fun of yourself. Uh, I mean, the whole, half the fun of being kind of a trend chaser is knowing that within three to five years' time, I will be able to make fun of myself. the thing i spent money on that i swore was going to be timeless that of course never was but anyway i actually found um an article in the atlantic that completely reinforces this entire theory it's really interesting it's called toward a universal theory of mom genes by ashley fetters it's from i think two it's from august of 2019 it talks about when you inject the idea of motherhood into something to put it bluntly it loses its sex appeal to mom dance is to dance embarrassingly Fairly or not, dresses, underwear, and heels that could be described as matronly are, at least according to fashion authorities, to be avoided, as are mom haircuts. Mom jeans, however, are an exception, or at least they are now. Although the 2003 SNL sketch that popularized the phrase mom jeans did so as a pejorative, and the jeans did languish in uncoolness for more than a decade afterward, they've enjoyed a recent renaissance. Today, the silhouette, thick, non-stretchy denim with a high waist, straight legs, and a moderately loose or relaxed fit can be regularly seen on models, influencers, and visco girl types on Instagram. Mom jeans, profoundly uncool and then suddenly very cool, got their revenge. The cyclical cyclical nature of fashion and a mid-2010s shift in the national mood helped rescue and revive a style that was long overshadowed by reductive stereotypes about moms and motherhood. Calling a pair of pants mom jeans implied that they were frumpy or dowdy. The absolute antithesis of cool, according to Emma McClendon, the author of Denim, Fashion's Frontier. As McClendon points out, in 2003, the trendiest jeans sat low on the hips and tighter on the thighs, resulting in a body hugging, skin bearing look. At the time, high rise, non stretchy, loose fitting denim could not have been more out of vogue. And yet, as the SNL sketch writers observed, moms were wearing them anyway. As it turns out, moms were wearing mom jeans, not because they were moms, but because they'd always worn mom jeans. Like I was saying, they were just jeans. In the history of jeans, as a garment and then she kind of goes into the history of jean silhouettes and how that has always been the most normal style of jean like since their inception and if anything they're the most close to like men's jeans which is just a very normal cut of denim anyway and for most women who came of age in the latter half of the 20th century Then, straight-legged and high-waisted jeans were pretty much always a cool, or at the very least perfectly normal, thing to wear out in the world. But it makes perfect sense that the term mom jeans would come about as a pejorative at a time when high-waisted, loose-fitting jeans looked particularly conservative compared with what trendy young women were wearing. As Beth—we love a Beth— As Beth Montemurro, a sociology professor at Penn State University at Abingdon, who researches gender and sexuality over the life course, told me, many stereotypes about moms and motherhood serve to desexualize mothers. There seems to be a separation between the identities of woman and mother, and an exception that a mother is a particular type of woman whose focus is on her children or should be, and often she's expected to be an example of modesty, particularly for her daughters. This stereotype is so powerful that linking something to motherhood can extinguish its sex appeal pretty quickly. Mom haircuts, mom sneakers, phrases like these call to mind an image of somebody who's not necessarily with it. Enough so that MILF and cool mom have emerged as descriptors that signify an exception to the norm of unsexy, uncool motherhood. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. know. That's interesting. But I, the part of what I try to use this podcast for is to uh, think through... When I'm rethinking my own internalized misogyny and I think so much mom stuff, I, got, I really only understood from its more derogatory angle. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't need to get into it. I had, I, I, but I had my own peach milkshake moment this week. If you listen to Childless Millennial, if you know, you know. <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. Um, but yeah, isn't this what's fun about life is constantly changing our mind and rethinking things? This is what I like to do for sport is regress through all the ways I misunderstood something and look at it from a different point of view and feel excited and relieved at my past naivete and how I didn't let it hold me back from uh, opening myself up to an experience that I very much wanted but my impressions of were very misguided that might have ultimately made me decide not to do something that I very much wanted but I was basing what it would be like off of things that weren't true or were derogatory or that at a certain angle, rather than like what it actually would be like in practice. And um yeah, a lot of thoughts for a different day. But I mean, yeah, justice for the moms in 2003 when that SNL sketch came out, it's, it is a funny sketch. And at the time, like when you watch, you're like, yeah, there there was a sector of moms that did wear dated looking jeans. But ever since, what was I in 2003, 16? I mean, Yeah. For the past 19 years, I never gave mom jeans a second thought and just assumed they were a-, a choice made for a person that isn't with it, isn't cool, doesn't care about the trends. Maybe they haven't heard of the low rise. And my God, do they have good reason to hold on tight to their fabrics. Every time something's spoken about in the increment of 19 years, I always think about Jean Valjean. And it's taking everything in me to not make a really weird joke about, you know, mom, Jean Jean, but it doesn't really work because Jean and Jean. Anyways, um, I, too, am seeking a normal life after a 19-year imprisonment of my mind of misunderstanding this clothing item that I now will hold on to for dear life. And uh, I just look forward to continuing to ask myself what these things really mean that we code as being matronly maternal or for moms only as I get deeper into motherhood and, and understand their plight, understand our plight. And every time I bring up Lay Mis, I just want to drop everything and watch that YouTube video of the cast of How I Met Your Mother when Neil Patrick Harris and Jason Siegel get into the confrontation. Maybe I'll do that during our next commercial break. Anyway, you guys. This is not the end of the episode, but I've been talking for so long, I thought it was. We got more questions to go through. And thank you for your voicemail. I'm also back to talk about Osea and Osea's Andaria Exfoliate and Glow Duo, which is the perfect thing to rehab sun-soaked skin and prep it for fall. I know we're in the last days of summer, which is so sad, and mine haven't been filled with like salty air and the rest on your door and sunshine. Um, But I hope yours are, and if that's the case, this dynamic duo, the Andaria Exfoliate and Glow it features two of Osea's best-selling products infused with nourishing seaweed and designed to elevate your summer body care. The Undaria Cleansing Body Polish provides an easy one-step exfoliating, cleansing and moisturizing shower essential and a unique gel to milk texture and the Undaria Algae Body Oil which if you listen to this podcast you should be familiar with it seals in hydration after the shower, moisturizes and makes you glow all day. It's rich yet non-greasy and the body polish I think is A great way to combine several products. The exfoliants that Osea makes are outstanding and give you that dolphin skin vibe. Love that it also cleanses and moisturizes. The body oil, I go through so many bottles of this a year because I put it on my skin when it's slightly damp. It seals in hydration for like hours and hours, if not days, in ways that I have had trouble with moisturizers my whole life doing. And it's not greasy, so I can like sit on my sheets and I'm not destroying a robe or a pair of pants. These are both incredible products. I love a duo. I I love a deal. And you can save and glow with the Andaria Exfoliate and Glow Duo. The perfect way to try two of their best-selling products and save 16% and get an additional 10% off with our promo code. Prep your skin for fall with clean vegan skincare from Osea. And right now we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code and 5 at OseaMalibu.com. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use code and 5 for 10% off.
2: Hi, Kate. I am a big fan. Uh, I feel like you're my big sister that I never had. Um, anyways, my question is um was there like a hot girl car when you were in high school um like did the cool kids drive a certain car or did you think that a certain car was really cool um I'm just curious like what the vibe was where you were from um but on the flip side I feel like there was also a certain confidence if you drove a shitty car like your car didn't define you and that's what made you cool I don't know if that was a thing where you were from but um, anyways, just uh curious about hot girl cars and hot girl shitty cars. Um, hope you are enjoying motherhood. Okay, bye.
0: I love this question so much. Uh it, as a person who really does not care about cars in life, the way I cared about them in high school is so comically disproportionate because it, it's not about what it's about. It, it it's not about the car or being interested in the car or the engine or the horsepower or whatever the fuck people <laughs> care about with cars. Uh, it was about the status symbol. It was about how it looked. It was about what it meant for your brand. And I actually wrote like a pretty like the excerpt about like hot girl cars, popular girl cars in my book that I had to trim down tremendously because this is a tricky conversation where it sounds like, you're a person that thinks they deserve to have hot takes on these like really expensive things in a way that doesn't always come across well. But from the eyes of like a 14 to 17 year old who is trying to navigate the world of social capital in terms of what items kind of do to precede you and tell people about who you are and what they assign to you as a person that can aid in your Niche popularity, which is a narrow thing that young people care about. Like, yeah, I did care a lot and I had some hot takes. Could I afford the cars I had hot takes about? God, no. Is it a privilege to even have access to a vehicle at a young age? Absolutely. But yeah, some days I looked at my 1990 gold Honda Civic that was passed down from my siblings that they lovingly called the Golden Chariot. And I thought, Golden Chariot. I should be girlbossing too close to the Sunfire. Apollo would never be caught dead in a 1990 Honda Civic. In my opinion, a Pontiac Sunfire was the Lamborghini of the central Virginia suburbs. I mean, if we want to, in my book I refer to having like a cool girl car as having a private Jetta lifestyle, because I do think I speak on behalf of everyone by stating the obvious that the ultimate hot girl millennial car is probably uh, the VW Jetta. It's it's hard to say how or why this started, because you might think, that especially in the early 2000s, we'd be skewing Beetlebug convertible because of Mandy Moore's candy video, as discussed with Nora last episode, um, or just kind of their general place in the zeitgeist. I feel like I had, you know, kind of baby doll T-shirts from Kohl's that would be like, white and short sleeved and have like black piping on the neck and sleeves and then like some sort of embroidery or um like peace love beetle bug decal on the shirt i don't i can't i'm having trouble placing that but i can i can picture it beetle bugs were very much a thing part of me wonders if that was desirable when i was a little younger the Jetta is almost like a cartoon version of a sedan where it has like slightly softer more rounded edges friendlier headlights. It's the perfect size. And my other, my only conjecture, other than it just being cuter and slightly softer than your average four-door sedan, is that low Bosworth got gifted a white one for graduation. We were like, oh, e- even the coastal elites are lusting after this saucy sedan with slightly softer edges and a less serious disposition than its more rigid older sibling, the Passant. Or its less serious candy-coated younger sibling, the Beetle Bug. It just was a perfect happy medium. The timing of this would affect your perception of Jettas. I believe I was a junior in high school when Low was gifted her white Jetta. LC had a hot girl car, too. If To me, if, if Pontiac Sunfires were the Lamborghini of Central Virginia, I would argue that Forerunners were the Range Rover of suburban Central Virginia. I thought those were like, those in Jeeps were kind of like the cool, sporty SUVs, like This was the era when Paris and Lindsay Lohan and co were cruising around, you know, Ladue with Range Rovers. And that was, you know, I had my eye on that down the line, but that was like private school stuff. Like I did not know anybody with a Range Rover. Um, I I think in my world, the the most exotic model of a sensible, solid, fuel efficient, reliable make was as luxury it was going to get. So yeah, while it was like more difficult to get it up for a, you know, Toyota Corolla or a Camry, I, I mean, you, you bring to the senior lot a Toyota Celera, bell of the ball. Like a, a Mitsubishi Gallant, not that exciting, but a Mitsubishi Eclipse, effectively, an Aston Martin. Similarly, I would say that a Nissan Altima didn't really rev my engines, but there's I remember the day a kid pulled up with a brand new 350Z, and I was like, damn, Nissan does have innovation that excites. That was a later slogan. I don't remember what it was at the time. Like a Nissan Pathfinder was chic as hell. But no offense to those of you that are ex-territorial about your <laughs> sporty Xteras. but as I've said before, I do think that like the yellow Xterra era... Like a Nissan Xterra is the Nextel phone of cars, and that is like a lot of them are bright yellow, seemingly indestructible, and have features that I'm not sure really match the functionality most people are using it for. A Nextel phone, well, why are you also a walkie-talkie? Can't you walkie and talkie while being like on the phone because it is a phone? And maybe at the time... Nextel uh, was it what like push to talk i don't know it, there probably was a lot of functionality for certain fields i gather a lot of construction workers use them there's a lot of indestru- like great benefits of the indestructible nature um but when you're you know like teenagers had them i always thought it was interesting and wondered what they use them for similarly in xterra you know happy for you read the roll bars and the all-wheel drive and the general off-roading potential but the most off-road anybody i kn- anyone was going that that i knew was like, you know, to a pumpkin patch to to the local haunted hayride. I feel like that was the outdoorsiest thing anybody did. There was maybe like a small segment of people that had more rural interests that would cow tip. But that has similar energy to me as like deer stacking at Christmas time. And I just don't F with people that like to get in trouble for sport. So, I mean, speaking of for sport, that was, those were a little too sporty for me. But in general more than sports cars i like sporty looking cars but not like off-roading cars <laughs> there's a difference but i mean back then i lusted after yeah jeeps you guys know my dream car is a geo tracker that was developed before the senior lot in the early 90s i developed an affinity for geo trackers because they kind of looked like barbie cars they often came in kind of those 90s, like, boating colors, your teals, your purples, your magentas, they just seemed very like California dreams. And for me, it seemed more approachable than a Wrangler that looked so large. The GeoTracker is like a small to midsize SUV version of a Wrangler where only half the back is a soft top, preferably white, fingers crossed. Um, I gather they are... Not safe, they will crush you like a bug. I think they were discontinued in' '94, and my life's goal is still to acquire one that is purpley with a teal racing stripe and a white soft top. That's why on our most recent um, merch drop what, in April, I made like a band T-shirt, and it's a woman wearing a blanket scarf driving off into the sunset in a purple geo tracker with a teal racing stripe with the words "We never stood a chance at the bottom. It just felt it felt right, it felt on brand that band tee along with tugboats Bantee, and sky daddy issues can be found at be there in 5.com, click shop anyway i also think wood paneled like wagoneers are gorgeous like the 90s kind in general like um suvs went very spaceship rounded coupe style in the 2000s and beyond and i love 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 like a super boxy square car like the original Jeep Cherokees. Not a Grand Cherokee, but a regular Cherokee. Anyway, you guys, what was I talking about? Oh, Jettas. I I actually, I feel like we've talked about this even in the Facebook group. Like, that is kind of solidified by many millennials as like the official hot girl car. And the reason Low Bosworth getting that white Jetta is so memorable to me, uh, well, especially because I rewatched it, and I forget if we talked about this on the episode Laguna Deets, but that graduation episode was so iconic low gets a white jetta and it's like yay thank you low is terrifying um christina s gets gifted a bible and just and what's crazy is my watching it back she was so excited for that bible i believed her and i was like god christina s is a good actress but that the thing is we know she's not because we saw her audition using that a walk to remember soundtrack when she thought she was auditioning for wicked (sighs) so dark so yeah, my aspirations were really affected by Laguna Beach at the time, but that's going to depend on the timing of when you were in high school. In terms of it being like a shtick to have kind of like a quote unquote crappy car, totally agree. I it's it's I mean, not to bring it back to Laguna Beach, but it's kind of like Kristen and the Isuzu, which I actually thought was a, was a very cool, boxy, sporty car, but it was Dunzo and she wanted a nicer car. I think that To your point, that's why I maybe felt uninspired by the Honda Civic is because it was just kind of like a middle-of-the-road, reliable vehicle. Again, so lucky and privileged to have access to a vehicle. Um, But it wasn't, like, grungy enough to be a bit, and it wasn't luxurious enough to serve as a status symbol to elevate me in any way. So it did what it was supposed to. It was a vehicle that got me around. But I do think that there is something to either skewing – what what i perceived as that isn't necessarily more luxury or uh something that is more of like a character something you'd give like a nickname the exception to that rule though is with what with what boys drove because i think i get gauge like cool level with cars with girls because that's who i was like comparing myself to directly but with guys my perception of their wheels would change if I developed a crush on them. So like one of the first people to kind of like screw me over or break my heart and like go after one of my friends drove a Ford Taurus, I believe. And it's not every day your heart skips a beat when you see a Ford Taurus in passing. Or like all of a sudden a Honda Accord is sexy, which is just not something I would normally say unless you are like business casually dating somebody who drives one. Anyway, fun question. I'm sure I didn't cover everything, but yes, I developed very hot takes and my Feelings toward cars to this day still very much have not left the senior lot because I think that's when I first started developing opinions about them. And uh, I, part of me will just always have an affinity for those 90s boxy vehicles. I had like a brief phase where I thought my best bet was to kind of soup up the Honda Civic. And I got really obsessed with spoilers. And I used to sit near a guy in study hall. Who I kind of had a crush on, and I believe he was pretty taken, you know, in a fast and furious America. Um, R B Paul Walker. This is when he was still with us. And he was like into drag racing, not the good kinds, like RuPaul's, but like actual, like on the street, but in the mean streets of suburban, like Shortbump, Virginia. Like, I don't know. Um, and he would like soup up his vehicles and like have kind of really old cars, and then would put labels on it that were other. Makes or models, like I think he had this like old Ford sedan that he put like an Acura logo on, got these like rims and got this spoiler and drove it around town like it was the newest sports car. And I just thought he was so cool. And for a while, I was really gunning for uh, a spoiler for my Honda Civic. And spoiler alert: My parents did not think that was the wisest use of their income. Thank God. Uh What do they do? What are they for? Do they are they, they aid in fuel efficiency? Like I don't know. I just thought, for some reason, I just thought spoilers were so sick. And if you have one now, I, I still do. And I, I salute you. But I just don't really, as a person that like knew nothing about cars, there just was this brief funny period where I wanted to impress like the car guys. And uh, that makes me laugh now, too, because... As we've discussed, I spent a little too much of my life uh, being uh, quite malleable in terms of my interests and trying to adopt the interests of boys around me to impress them, get them to respect me, take me seriously, like me, you know, all the things that we deserve by default but feel like we have to prove as young women. And uh, in many cases, it would get me interested in music or something that I wouldn't normally like that I ended up actually liking myself. Anyway, I don't even know where I was going with that. Oh, there's just this (laughs) very brief time where I like, Research just enough to be able to hold a conversation in study hall with this guy about like souped up vehicles. There was like a real movement in the 90s, 2000s for like car modifications. No, is that still happening? I'm not sure. Maybe because that dude on the ultimatum. Wow. The season that just premiered season. The the queer one was great. This one is the season two of the heterosexual ultimatum on Netflix. It is so dysfunctional and terrifying. Uh, want to pulse check on Kat to make sure she's okay. Roxanne's hustle and grind mindset is, it's almost, it's, it's almost vintage at this point. <laughs> she's really girl bossing hard out here. Um, but her partner she came to the show with, he, his entrepreneurial venture is like this franchise, car franchise called Tint World. I think that's why I was thinking about this brief period of time where I wasted my time, my wine, my spirit, my trust trying to impress a dude in study hall. It's just an example of a time that I regret doing something that a boy liked and wish I spent more time doing something I liked or at the very least studied. Because maybe I, I really talk a big game about how I think being a B student is great and we don't need to always go for the A. But I'm not sure I can say that statement with integrity because I might have been an A student had I not spent so much time trying to impress this guy by talking about ways he could modify his Acura Integra. Thanks for the question. Okay, this is a fun new advertiser, and I'm excited because I don't even know what I like anymore. What's I don't know what's in my wardrobe, what fits, for the mom jeans of it all. And Stitch Fix is a really cool company that provides you a stylist, like a fashion expert who shops for you and knows what you like and what you don't, and will fit you and send you pieces on a budget to make shopping easier. Stitch Fix is the best way to shop new styles and brands. You can kind of think of them as your style partner. You fill out a survey about what you like, don't like, different silhouettes, what you're comfortable in, which I really appreciated because for me, it's not so much about the styles I like aesthetically, but like how I want them to fit and feel on me. And you share your style, sizes and budget with the quiz, and they send you five items in a fix right to your door. And with your choices in mind and sizes from extra small to 3XL, they'll find your perfect fit. You try everything on at home, keep what you like, and then send back the rest. And shipping and returns are always free. And they have over a thousand brands and styles and you can order a refresh as needed or set it and forget it, as they say, with regular fixes. So you're in total control however you want to use it. I was feeling a little down and out about clothes, but they understood the assignment because I said, listen, I don't wear a lot of color. I need things to be oversized on top. I don't really want pants. My NCM is a little too hard to figure out. And they just kind of understood my like gothy athleisure who wants to be a fashion blogger on the side vibe. I mean, I'm running out of time, but they really did a great job. So thanks to Stitch Fix, they just get me and they'll get you too. Try today at stitchfix.com slash be there in five, and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash be there in five, stitchfix.com slash be there in five. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I have started to drink it every day. It's something that my husband makes for me. I'm really milking this whole postpartum thing to not lift a finger or a straw if I don't need to. But honestly, I was tired of taking so many supplements and wanted one solution that would support my entire body, that would cover nutritional bases. And I could really use a boost in energy and some immune system support these days without taking a million pills and, and vitamins. And Sometimes things that are uh, healthy don't necessarily throw me in the taste department, but EG1 is delicious and it makes me feel ready to take on my day and makes me feel like I'm focusing on my health with one simple drinkable habit. And I am in desperate need of a probiotic, which this includes, which is incredibly helpful. Every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients of high quality that give major benefits like gut and mood support, boosted energy, and even healthier looking hair, skin, and nails. And AG1 is delivered every month, so it's super easy to make it a daily habit. I also am a big fan of the single serving travel packs, uh, especially if you forget or are on the go. I'm not really on the go, but sometimes I'm in the basement and if it's upstairs, it feels too far away. And anyway, if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash be there in five. That's drinkag1.com slash be there in five. Check it out. Hi, Kate.
1: It's Jen. So I don't know if you've seen, but it is Tuesday, August 26th. And we have news that Ariana Grande dropped her label with Scooter. I also saw Demi Lovato dropped and Justin Bieber. Well, maybe he's looking for new management. I don't know. He didn't come out yet to say, but something's going on. And I am so interested to what's going to come out. Do you have any insider scoop or have any guesses as to what is going on i am on the edge of my seat all right try to keep that as brief as possible for you hope everything is going well at home with you and teddy um and the rest of your family okay uh talk to you
0: later bye thank you for calling in i last week had asked um If you're calling into Kate Lila, you know, ask general questions, advice, whatever. But also, if you want to fill me in on what's going on in pop culture while I'm on Matt Leaf, I'd be so appreciative. And I had so many calls about Scooter Braun. I needed to answer one. So thank you to this caller uh, for the well wishes and the question. And, um, you know, what's funny about my answer is, you know, I'm I'm nothing if not a big Swifty. And while I'd love for there to be some nefarious underlying truth to what she was communicating in vigilante shit. Well, you know, he was doing lines and crossing all of mine. Someone told his white collar crimes to the FBI. Um, great song, great performance, a song. I arguably didn't even like that much until the era's tour performance, which will go down in history. Uh, we love, I love a chair. Who doesn't love a chair dance ever since Britney Spears drive me crazy. I've loved it. I love a chair dance. Um, But my take on this is very similar to what was my take on uh, Taylor Swift's alleged memoir being dropped July 9th, and nobody cared about that theory then, and I'm sure nobody will care about this theory now, because what both situations have in common is that I'm going to say this has a hell of a lot less to do with Taylor Swift and weirdly has a lot to do with the K-pop band BTS, (laughs) because when there was all these videos going around about There being, like, a big celebrity memoir that was, like, going to be announced on June 13th, and then that was dropping July 9th. Everyone thought because of Last Kiss, it was obviously going to be Taylor Swift's memoir, that July 9th, The Beat of Your Heart, which was, like, very soon after Speak Now Taylor's version came out. And I guess it being announced on the 13th made people think that, too. But, like, I love Taylor Swift and the fandom as as much as all of you. But, like, she doesn't own all dates. (laughs) and. July 9th might mean something to another group. And that's when um, BTS, their army, I think their like fandom was uh, founded. And I think the 13th was like their debut. I might be transposing those. Anyway, um I was talking to one of my friends, Hannah, about this, who was familiar with those dates having something to do with BTS. And I was like, well, maybe I'll make, I'm getting tagged a lot in the Taylor Swift writing a memoir videos. Maybe we should put the right information out there because what I thought was weird about that whole situation is that bookstores were taking pre-orders for this alleged Taylor Swift memoir that like wasn't happening. And it was so clear that it was these, you know, days were Easter eggs for the BTS army, which is a a massive fandom that, you know, is just as big, if not bigger than the Swifty fandom. And uh, it just it's just interesting how there was so much hype for all of that. Um, I mean, even people taking pre-orders and then when it turned out to not be hers, you, people just like drop off and move on and no one really cares. And it makes me realize that the fun is in the speculation, not in like the finding the truth because I'm like, Oh, I'm being like a buzzkill by telling people it's not her memoir. But I did feel weird about people taking pre-orders for what was not going to be a book that most people might like it. If you're giving someone $30 and you get a book about a band or a fandom you don't follow, like, that kind of sucks. Anyway, um, my point is that my response here, similarly, will probably just be, like, a boner killer. Because I don't actually think that vigilante shit um, is some, like, prophetic creative nonfiction about white-collar crimes in the FBI I've seen videos and blind items and Reddit posts that I just can't find any evidence or proof for that there at one point there was a potential scandal with like, I, I don't, I don't really under, I don't know how any of this works, but I guess like there are streaming bots that can inflate numbers for, you know, an album or a song's success rate kind of like, I mean, any, you know, buying fake followers, like whatever digital metrics you can ultimately monetize and, you know, illegally obtain. I think that exists somewhere for streaming. And I saw some blind items that allegedly unfounded were saying that he was involved with, you know, doing that for some of his artists and got caught. But I can't really find anything that would suggest that that is true or what's happening. But when you read more about the mass exodus. The timing of the announcements is really suspicious and weird and clustered, but the broader story kind of makes sense actually, with what he's doing from like a corporate leadership and project standpoint. That is like a less sexy description. And don't get me wrong, this dude is not my favorite. Uh, and if he, you know, has been doing criminal activity, I hope there is justice. But let's just look at the facts for what we do know. So on August 18th, there was like a report that came out that Justin Bieber was looking for new management, but years were, there was like five years still remaining on his existing contract with SB Projects, Scooter Bronze company, and rumors that Braun and Bieber hadn't spoken in months. And following that, more stories came out about different artists leaving Scooter Bronze management. I think the next was Demi Lovato, which was an alleged amicable split, and then Ariana Grande, allegedly also amicable, but we don't actually have confirmed that she left SB Projects. And then the next day, uh, you know, the wickedly talented Adele Dazeem, uh, there was an announcement that she had left Scooter Braun's company in January, and then the Associated Press reported that Carly Rae Jepsen, um, Asher Roth, an artist named Baby Jake. Um, with representatives for the artists saying on August 24th that their clients had not worked with Braun in quite some time. And then there was also Jay Balvin's departure in May for Roc Nation. And this kind of illustrates what seems to be a pattern. But when you actually look at the timing, so Adina Menzel, not Adele Dazeem, she had left in January. Once the AP announced, Carly Rae Jepsen and co. said they had not worked with him in quite some time. Jay Balvin left in May. Ariana Grande, we don't have confirmed. Justin Bieber, we don't have confirmed. And I guess Demi Lovato, we do have confirmed. So it was kind of like a waterfall effect of all these people that were no longer working with him, though the ties were not all severed in that brief period of time. They are more scattered. However, the announcements were clustered over that time, if that makes sense. So it definitely seems suspicious, but hard to know exactly what might be going on. So it's one of those things where, it's hard to say like what exactly is wrong, but it also is clear something's not exactly right. Because even reputable sources, like, you know, variety said that the whole saga is a strange nether world of off-the-record confirmations and denials, where one set of sources says one thing and another says the opposite. So I think getting stuff confirmed has been really confusing. Like in variety, it said it's a different world since the pandemic, one source told variety. You can't just be an asshole like that anymore. And, but I, without any other context. But there was more broad reporting that it's a misunderstanding uh, because he's amidst a career shift and he's getting out of management and has been for years. In page six, a source assured, always fine. All of Scooter Braun's clients are under contract and negoti- negotiations have been going on for several months as Scooter steps into his larger role as High bee America's CEO. Um, But then it flips again and says another source added where there's smoke, there's fire. So even the like official credible sources don't know. And they're quoting random sources that really are giving no added context to the situation. But I actually think that his career shift kind of makes sense. I feel like I saw a, a TikTok of Dumois saying that like he overvalued taylor swift's masters or something and It was financial trouble i'm not totally sure i understand that narrative though i didn't listen to the episode so maybe they go into this but scooter so Ithaca holdings acquired taylor swift's masters and then sold them to shamrock holdings for 300 million dollars so that has not been in his possession for some time so i'm not really sure of how the way the valuation of her masters or the performance of her taylor's version streaming can impact him now again i don't understand the inner workings there could be a part of him that is still on the hook for something gets a percentage like i don't really know even like trying to investigate shamrock holdings is like a big question mark but um he has not been in possession of taylor's masters since 2020 which leads me to the bigger business deal that I actually think has more to do with this, which is that his company that had bought Big Machine and thus Taylor Swift Masters, they sold specifically her Masters, but Ithaca Holdings retained Big Machine. And in 2021, Ithaca Holdings merged with A company called HYBE, I don't know, it's H-Y-B-E in all caps. I don't know if, um, I apologize if it's HYBE, but in my head I keep saying HYBE. And that is the South Korean entertainment studio behind the massive K-pop group BTS. So like all of Scooter's body of work clients, whatever, merged with the entertainment studio behind K-pop group BTS. They merged in a deal that was like $1.05 billion or something. And at the time, Scooter's client list was Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, Jay Balvin, Demi Lovato, Florida Georgia Line, Adele Dazim, many more. And the deal was to merge a range of services, including management, label services, and publishing. So as a result of the Hive and Ithaca Holdings merger, a lot of Scooter Bronze artists received a payout. There's a corporate filing that Variety obtained that said the merger led to $161 million in equity received by Ithaca's staff and artists. So Scooter Braun was handed $86.2 million worth of shares, and Bieber and Grande each received around $11 million. The shares received by Jay Balvin and Demi Lovato were worth $4.1 million and $1.06 million, respectively. Um, So on and so forth. So I've seen some theories that not only. You know, does he have multiple clients who might be used to uh, more one-on-one management and a certain style that is not really in the style of the company that they merged with, the K-pop giant, um, that they naturally want to move on due to new ownership, new management involved. But the dividends as a result of that merger were uneven for Scooter's clients. And like, yeah, Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande walked away with 11 mil, but others did not receive such a hefty payout, and that has fueled speculation that there are some money disputes that drove some of the walkouts. Though that's also unconfirmed. Um, However, I the thing that I think makes sense because of a episode I just recorded. Not just so at the end of June, I think it was. um, I was recording with different podcast listeners for a series called beth's in show and um that's predominantly for patreon where listeners of this podcast kind of like we used to do with powerpoint parties but in audio and one-on-one conversations we can talk about things that you guys are obsessed with deep dives rabbit holes snorkels whatever things like you want to talk about Uh, because i think you guys are just as interesting as any public figure i'd have on the show and i thought that'd be like a fun mat leave thing in one of the conversations i had was about k-pop and something i didn't know about um the group BTS and them being on hiatus is that BTS is currently on an extended hiatus due to South Korea's mandatory military service requirements. So they aren't going to be like performing, releasing new music, et cetera, for several years. So, from what I understand, this company that merged with Scooter's company, Ithaca. Um, that Scooter is now American CEO of is taking a, a major hit because their success is inextricably tied to BTS and their earnings. But BTS is on this mandatory extended hiatus, and this is cutting into high profits tremendously. So what I don't know is, did Scooter overvalue or get them into a deal based on his current catalog that is no longer holding up their they're experiencing declining profits due to the bts hiatus he has some sort of you know term or position or role or you know delivery of a bottom line that he's uh you know that that's required or expected of him as a result of this very lucrative merger and with his clients exiting maybe due to management differences or uneven dividends and payouts and bts's hiatus is this company now suffering with this merger that he's largely responsible for and he has to step in be more involved and kind of figure out what to do what direction to move this company and uh as a result of it probably being misleadingly overvalued relative to his then client roster that no longer wanted to be a part of this or just took the windfall from the payout and bounced so like if he's on the hook for being a part of this uh company they now, I'm sure, have seen better days financially, and maybe he really does need to focus on that. So I don't know anything. I'm like literally guessing based on articles I've put together. Um, I just think that is kind of like, you know, Occam's razor, like the simplest explanations, often the right one. I I think what we know of that merger and financial situations that might be going on as a result of it, it would make sense his focus would need to be there. And I actually don't necessarily think that that sounds like bullshit. Um, Could there be something else shady going on? Like, sure, I'll be interested to see if that happens. We just don't know that. So I don't feel at liberty to wildly speculate. TLDR, I think in 2021, they merged with a very big company that might be handling things differently. That is undesirable for artists paired with people just being generally sick of him because Ariana Grande has fired him before. Maybe there's a less hands-on or one-on-one approach. Maybe there was a new management style people weren't liking. Uh, the K-pop universe does things differently, I gather. If you listen to the Patreon, we talk through the K-pop machine. It's quite interesting. Um, so there could be differences there. There could be differences of opinion or fallout from the payout from the merger and how the dividends were distributed to clients based on what they expected, or maybe people got paid out and just wanted to bounce anyways because they weren't happy for a while. Um all of the departures actually happened at different times that are confirmed and the ones that aren't confirmed happened that same week. So we don't really know if they necessarily happened right then and there to fuel the suspicious timing, even though, again, the announcement was suspicious and most sources do think that there is, is something fishy going on. We just don't have anything confirmed. Um, And beyond that, I do wonder if there are a lot of financial issues and something is tanking that is a result of. Uh, him under delivering that he does need to focus on now that that broader parent company has probably seen better days, given that their success is so tied to BTS's. So, TLDR, that's what I think. I don't know anything. Don't listen to me. I don't understand like big corporate mergers and acquisitions. I had to watch each succession episode like three times. It was so corporate for me to understand it. I- I'm a vague marketing girly who is usually wrong. So, you know, don't listen to me. But as we've learned. The excitement and fun is in the speculation, not always the facts. (laughs) So there's my hopefully responsible speculation. Thanks for your call. Normally I DM her on for two, three more questions and get this to the two and a half hour mark. Thanks for listening to a semi-shorter episode. There were so many good voicemail call-ins though that I'll probably do more of these episodes because I love doing them and I hope you don't mind. Uh, but we there are other fun things coming up. So I all as always, I hope you come back and have a great long Labor Day weekend. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for sticking around, for listening to my motherhood adjacent ramblings. Uh, And I hope you guys have a great Labor Day weekend. Thank you for the privilege of your time. Please come back next week. Follow me at Kate Kennedy on Instagram, at BeThereIn5 for the podcast Instagram. Support our sponsors, Stitch Fix, Osea, Orate, AG1. You can find all of the podcast discount codes. Most are still active from yesteryear on be uh, beTherein5.com. You and there's like a link in the menu for uh, podcast codes. You can also shop merch there, whether you want a band tee that says Sky Daddy Issues or um <laughs> We Never Stood a Chance in a Geo Tracker, among other things. And uh, yeah, thanks for your support and more personal stuff about birth story and whatnot is on patreon.com slash be therein5. And as always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five, I swear.